This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. I mean, it's so true. We listen, we read. There's a bias, right? There's an inherent bias that we all have. And what it then does is it it actually impacts our selection process, right? So if I am biased against somebody and I, you know, I don't like Joe Blow from my office and I think he's just out to get me, then I'm not going to select all of the data that I notice about Joe Blow, just the data that supports my hypothesis that he's a jerk, that he's out to get me. I may not notice that he gives, you know, that he buys an extra lunch for somebody. I may not notice that. Or that he even invited me to his son's wedding. May not notice that. I only notice that he's out to get me. It's about bias. Everybody on earth has it. And what uh, our great guest uh, was talking to us about is that Scientifically, we are going to make our argument not based on fact. We're going to first take our bias, our position, and then we're going to go look for the data that supports it. And the neat thing about data is you can make it say whatever you want it to say. And we watch the spinsters, and more importantly, notice you. Notice yourself. What do you believe, and how does your bias impact the data you're choosing and the candidates you're favoring? You're listening to the best of The Matt Townsend Show. We thought that we would have, you know, a lot of time to focus. With all this technology, it would buy us more time, right? More time to be with the people we love, more time to be attentive and in tune. And in reality, what ends up happening is not even close. We still don't have time. And so, and what I'm talking about is a simple idea of being in love, right? So when somebody thinks about being in love, they always think of the love part, like the the love is the is the important part. You got to as long as you have the love part, life is going to be great. But what I'm going to be focusing on is not the love part, but the in part. You know, the in. You got to be in love. It's kind of like being in debt. It's not the debt, it's being in the debt that's the problem. When you're inundated in the debt, ugh, it's the problem. But if we could be inundated in the love, then life would be great. We're just overwhelmed and so full of love for each other. So when we talk about it, I'm going to get into four different things to make sure that we get in. And our nature, really, uh, we've been told, is a great way to get in. And part of that is because it just automatically probably takes you to a whole different level of in vibration of life, I guess, because normally we're just kind of vibrating off of our screens and we're just feeling all of this intensity. In our marriages, in our relationships, four keys to get in. The relationship. Number one, you got to tune into your partner. I've been married 25 years in a couple of days. And um, here's the deal. If I don't listen to my partner, if I don't pay attention to my partner, then I do not have a clue what her needs are, her wants are. You have got to learn, all of us have got to learn to tune into what's really going on with our spouse. What are they really thinking? By the way, like you remember the old radio tuner where you had to tune in and dial in the radio? You might have to adjust it depending on where you were. But the minute you tuned in, it would eliminate a lot of the static. It would get rid of some of the interference. We've got to figure out and be present enough with our spouses to be able to tune into what they're really trying to say. 
And after 25 years, we should be really good at it, right? Well, only if you've been in. If you haven't been in, then you're not going to be great at being able to dial into what your partner's saying. Some solutions for that are very simply find ways to clarify what your partner is saying. Don't assume you know what they mean because they're saying certain words. Ask them, what do you mean by that? When you say that, I don't know, I'm worried about today. It's not going to go so well. Don't assume you know exactly what that means and don't just like answer it for them. What do you mean? What are you worried about? And let them explain more. Spend more time actually looking at your partner. You know, it's easier to tune into something that you're looking at, right? It might be easier to tune into somebody that you're listening to. So we can tune in with our eyes. We can tune in with our ears. We can tune in with our whole heart. We got to tune into our partner. Another rule, allow your partner in. One of the biggest complaints I hear from par- uh, in marriage uh, coaching and relationship coaching is, I don't even feel like I know my husband. He doesn't even let me into his world. She asks you how your day is. You're like, fine, my day's fine. No more need to discuss it. Do you let your spouse in? Do they share what's really in their heart and in their mind? Do they feel safe enough to share it? Because if they don't feel safe enough to share it, they're not going to share it. Are you a, a safe spouse or will you know you get laughed at? We've got to allow our partners into our fears, our beliefs, our concerns, and that means you've got to be able to hear it. Uh, there was some interesting research done of women that say they want to hear what's going on in their husband's heart, what they're thinking in their mind. And as soon as the husband shares it, almost inevitably, the wife's like, oh, I can't believe you're thinking that. You always think that. I know. My bad. If you want to, your partner to share more, you've got to be able to handle what they bring, and you've also got to be able to make it safe. Another rule is stay more involved in each other's lives. A complaint I hear all of the time is it doesn't seem like my partner's even into the family. They're not even paying attention. They're never involved, which means, Dad, you need to help more. Be there for homework. Help your kids do their assignments. Run the carpools more. Pick up the team. Drive the team. Be involved. Also, can I just suggest watch out for how we do our distribution of chores and of um, division of labor. You will make these divisions when you're young, maybe naive. The wife does everything on the inside of the house. The husband does everything on the outside of the house. Be careful, ladies, because there's because we have lighting and technology inside the house. You can end up working all night till midnight, but we can only mow the lawn until it's dusk. If you want a fair and equal division of labor, we're going to have to learn to talk about it. And then last but not least, you got to touch. you got to be in touch with each other. If you remember, that's where a lot of the chemicals started in the first place. So make sure you're touching. Uh, and you can touch, you know, in non-sexual ways. You can hold hands. You can hug. You can kiss in front of the kids and drive them crazy. That's the reason we're in love, right? Keep in touch. That's one of the goals. Stay involved. Allow your partner in and tune in to your partner. That's the way you stay in love. Interesting stuff, folks. Hoping to help you see the good in the world. We'll take a break. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Uh, today we are talking about uh, flu and, and the inf- and influenza 
Um, you know, it's coming to an end, but it has been a pretty nasty season and um, a lot of deaths, uh, a high um, a high impact on a lot of uh, senior citizens, younger people as well, uh, infants. A lot of a lot of pain has been suffered because of the body, your body, and the flu today or the, uh, this year. But what exactly is the flu? How does it affect our body? And uh, so we we wanted to bring in Dr. Lara Haynes. She's a PhD from the University of Connecticut Health and uh, is a professor of immunology there and is uh, today going to walk us through um, what happens with the flu, how it impacts our body, how uh, it causes, what it's, what it's doing when it's causing all the pains and the problems. Dr. Haynes, thank you so much for being with us today. Oh, glad to be here. Talk to us about um, the flu, the influenza virus. What What is going on? I mean, we always know that we've got to get our flu shots. We know that the the it's that it's a kind of a, a moving target. It seems like that we're constantly having to to fight it a different way or find a different way to fight it. It, it. Talk to us. Teach us about what is influenza and what's going on in our bodies as we start to uh, to feel the impact of it. So the flu is a virus that enters your body via your usually your respiratory system or other mucosal membranes. It could be your eyes or your mouth, whatever, and it gets into your um, upper airways in your lungs, and that's where it infects the cells. It'll bind to receptors on specific cells in your airways, and it will then get into the cells and begin to replicate, because as as any virus would want to do, it wants to make more of itself. And what our bodies will then do is try and stop that. Yeah. And... So there's two kinds of uh, immune responses to a viral infection, such as flu. So the first that happens very quickly is the innate immune response. So this will happen to really any kind of infecting pathogen. So whether it be a flu or a virus, you'll have an immediate response, and it'll be production of uh, soluble mediators. So these are little little molecules that are really telling the rest of the immune system, hey, something's going on. We need to get up and get fighting because we've been invaded, basically. Mm. And uh, they respond to specific uh, molecules that are on the virus. So the virus itself triggers the immune response. These then these these little molecules that are sent out uh, start activating, for lack of a better term, the immune army. So it's it's really defending against invasion in any sense of it. And you so now we have uh, lots of cells, lots of soldiers being recruited into your lungs, mobilized, recruited into your lungs, and they're going to begin fighting the virus. Oh, interesting. So so is that is that when your lungs start to you know burn or ache or well, you'll, fill with more fluid? Yeah, so you'll get some fluid in there. Um you'll start with not it's not so much feeling things in the lung. It's it's the the um the soluble factors that are sort of sending out the alert are really what drives the 
feeling like crap. Yeah, just lethargic and yeah. So it's it's these are called interleukins. They 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 signal other cells to come. So your 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 immune cells are going to be living in your lymph nodes or your spleen, hanging out waiting for an infection. Now they're they're mobilized to come in um, by these soluble factors that are spewed out into your bloodstream. And so now they're being recruited in, and this, number one, they're going to start to divide a lot, so you're going to get swollen lymph nodes. That's Mm. your cells dividing and responding. And then um, these soluble factors, since they are going all over your body, in your bloodstream, they go to your brain, they go to your muscles. So um, the reason that you get lethargic is what's going on in your brain. These factors affect uh, signal, they they signal to to, um, cells in your brain that you, so that you will feel tired, you will feel lethargic. They signal in your muscles, so your Mm. muscles will start to ache. Wow. And these are, so that's interesting. So it's, it's not the flu that makes me ache. It's my body's response to the flu that makes me ache and achy and lethargic exactly. and swollen lymph nodes. It's yes. my body responding. Yes. Yes. So it's, it's the, the army of your immune system mobilizing to fight the virus. And, and you know, the, the ultimate goal is for, the, for your adaptive immune response to come in to your lungs and specifically kill the virally infected cells. Now, interesting. Does it does it overshoot? I mean, could it be that I'm getting way too big of a of a fix for a small dose of the virus? That's a possibility. Yes, and you know th- this this uh, is one of the problems with an immune response in a vital organ such as the lung, um, during the resolution or the, of the infection, when the virus is pretty much getting cleared, you're having a really strong response going on in the lung because of your immune system. Yeah. And that's causing a lot of pathology. Okay. And that's going to be lung damage. That's, that's when it gets really hard to breathe. You're coughing. And if I already have lung issues, if yeah. I already have uh, breathing issues, then this is where it could become fatal. Exactly. Yeah. Yes. The other problem with this is this really now sets up a stage for a secondary infection. So you can get a secondary bacterial infection. A, a lot of people who die from flu actually don't really die from flu. They'll die from secondary bacterial pneumonia. Mm-hmm. And that's, you know, you just, you begin to get a little better, you think, like you're better for a couple of days. And then all of a sudden you get the bacteria and pneumonia. And if you're not in the hospital, it's not going to be good. Oh, wow. Interesting. So yeah. isn't it, it, it really is our body doing everything it can to help us, but simultaneously it's causing pain. And if we don't watch it and pay attention and we already have other conditions, it could, it could actually exacerbate the whole situation. Exactly. So, you know, older folks who have uh, chronic lung disease, people who or younger folks who have chronic lung disease also, uh, people who smoke or people who uh, have jobs where they ha- are exposed to uh, lung irritants. These are all people are really 
are much more susceptible to a bad outcome during flu. Then we talk about the the flu shot that we ought to get the flu mm-hmm. shot. And so, what is when we get the flu shot? What exactly is happening, and and how is it beneficial if there are so many variations of the flu? Yes. So it it is beneficial. It's obviously not a hundred percent preventive. But so what the flu vaccine does is uh, it it's it's just purified proteins from the virus. So there's no actual virus in a flu vaccine except for the flu mist, which is the, what you get up your nose, which mm-hmm. they haven't been recommending. It hasn't been working well lately. But um, all the flu shots that you get intramuscularly in your arm, they're all, they contain no flu virus. So, um, and the goal of those is to induce an antibody response. And now the antibodies are going to be made by a responding B lymphocytes, and the antibodies will circulate. And once you have the virus in your lungs or once it, it gets introduced to your body, what the antibodies do, they're just little um, molecules that can bind to the virus. They're specific for a specific type of the flu virus, and that's decided about now is they're they're deciding what flu viruses need to be in the vaccine for next year. Mm. Um, So they'll bind to the virus and the the ultimate goal there is to prevent the virus from binding to the cells in your lungs. Now, maybe it doesn't work totally, but if it works a little bit, the level of virus that actually gets in your lungs is reduced. But also, if you do get an infection, and new virus is produced in your lungs from your lung cells, the antibody will mop it up quickly, quicker, yeah, yeah, quicker. Yeah. So you, it's just sort of dampening down the level of infection so you don't get as sick. Uh, the other thing that we don't understand, but it's really been coming out in studies lately, is that the flu vaccine is highly correlated with reductions in heart attacks and strokes, especially in older folks. So flu makes older people much more susceptible to heart attacks and strokes for huh. reasons that we don't understand. Yeah. And the flu vaccine really protects against that. Wow. And then, yeah. so is it compounding? So if I get a flu shot every year, does it, that, that means I'll get different proteins uh, and uh, influence of proteins year after year after year, mm-hmm. does it make, over time, does it build a stronger bridge for me? Um, or a stronger wall against this? It, it could. Um, we're not really sure. The, the The main issue with the way that the flu vaccine is made now is that it it's not, obviously, it's not, it doesn't induce a long-lived Mm. response. So, you know, it it induces a a response that is protective over a period of months, but it doesn't seem to last that that, that it's a very transient protection. And we don't understand why. You know, this is part of of the immune system that that is not totally understood yet. You know, what makes a long-lived response versus what makes a short-lived response. And in, you know, some vaccines, you know, like like a, a measles vaccine induces a lifelong immune response, hmm. but flu doesn't. Flu and and it's it's also the nature of the vaccine because it's um, 
it's not as strong, whereas a, a measles vaccine is a, is a attenuated live virus. A flu vaccine is protein, and it induces a different kind of immune response. Yeah. So, yeah. So. Does um, do, do you sense like overall that the the flu viruses that we're seeing today are they more aggressive than we would have seen thirty years ago? Are these viruses getting stronger, tougher, more? Um, tricky than they maybe were years ago, or is it the same virus? I mean, is, is it just another iteration? I, it's mostly another iteration. Um, you know, once in a while we'll have a strong uh, pandemic virus, like we had in 2009, 2010, or like what we had in 1918. But uh, honestly, like t- this year, the H3N2 was circulating more than the H1N1, which was what the pandemic was in 2010. Um, and, you know, this is, this is a, not a new virus. This is something that goes around every few years. Hmm. So un- unless there's a perturbation of a new, with a new virus or a new combination of virus, then um, we're, we see uh, similar things. And so if people you know, get sick and survive one pandemic, when that virus comes around again, they'll be protected. What would you say to um, people that say, well, man, Laura, you know, it sounds like a lot of people are getting the flu shot, so I probably don't need it. Uh, because I think what, what I just said is that, you know, it doesn't protect totally. So even if you, those people who don't, who do get, who, who get it and still get sick, can still transmit it to you. Yeah. And my my big issue with people who don't get the flu shot is that if they get sick, you know, they, they may be young and healthy, but, you know, they're going to go. But grandma may visit, not be. Visit grandma. Yeah. Or, or, or you know, visit uh, elderly people. And they, the younger people are much more protected when they get the flu vaccine than older people are, and which is not good because older people are way more susceptible to getting really sick. Mm-hmm. So um, honestly, when you're getting the flu shot, you're probably getting it not for yourself so much, but to keep t- from transmitting it to other people. Hmm. That's a great way to look at it. Yeah. What would you, um, I mean, I guess in the end, because then we also hear, uh, I mean, this is something that if if I have a lung issue, if I have asthma or severe asthma or other issues that or and what are some of those issues that would make me more susceptible that I really need to make sure I'm paying attention when they're talking about the flu? So, yes. Yeah, so anyone who has asthma, respiratory allergies, um, COPD, emphysema, um, or even if you know you're just really prone to getting a lot of viral infections, uh, you know, young adults of that nature, um, also young kids. Mm. So young kids, you know, most, most people, once they get to be an adult, have some flu immunity. They're not, they've been exposed to flu, so they're a bit protected. But young kids are not. They're very, um, n- their immune systems are quite naive, and, and so they can get really sick. And I think this past season, we've seen a lot of kids die from flu. Oh. That's so yeah. tragic. Well, Lara, we appreciate your insight uh, and your great, your great just willingness to help uh, help us understand 
that uh, when you are feeling all the pains, all the aches, all the trouble, the congestion in your chest, uh, it's really your body getting to work. It's a sign of good, not necessarily a sign just of the bad. Your body is engaged. Um, Laura Haynes, again, Ph.D., professor of immunology at the University of Connecticut Health um, and uh, great, uh, great insights. Thank you very much. We will continue the journey Continue learning, doing what we can to make not just the the world a better place from, you know, influenza, but uh, up next we'll do a little Coach's Corner, see if we can improve our relationships along the way. This is the Matt Townsend Show. It's my house, come on! Because life doesn't come with a handbook, you need a coach. Here's Dr. Matt and his Coaching Corner. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, um, one of the things I studied in my doctoral program is uh, a theory that's called symbolic interaction theory, more than you'll ever probably want to know or remember. But the idea behind the theory is it's a social psychology theory, which basically says that all symbols in life are created, right? So you're not born just knowing something. You You don't necessarily know what a pen is. You don't know who your family are in relation, I mean, as you would know them today. But that that symbol, that I that information becomes different as you interact with it over time. And so if we interact positively on certain things, we tend to feel more positively about those things. If we interact more negatively on things, we tend to feel more negative towards those things. And our symbols over time end up being created. Which is why, you know, when you're first in love, the symbol of kissing is a very positive, incredible symbol. But if you're mad at each other and you've spent 15 years fighting, then the symbol of kissing is just a symbol of loneliness because we never do it anymore. And so um, why I bring this up is that I, we talk a lot about creating resilient kids, creating more resilient families. And I, one of the things I was thinking about recently is maybe what we need to get better at is sharing some of our stories as we interact with our family and our kids. And I think there's certain stories that induce or create more resiliency for our kids and our families. And these stories, a lot of times, they they may be told, but they may not be told in a way that you're trying to foster the principle of resiliency. Uh, Resiliency is that ability to to bend and and twist and kind of handle the winds of the world and um, and still be able to kind of snap back to your to your healthy state and so um, one of the things I wanted to talk about are some of these stories that you should probably be sharing with your family. I know I need to be sharing more of with my family. These stories, by the way, will start to normalize the fact that life is hard life there are some struggles. But it will also normalize the fact that it's through pain that you progress, um, that it's not the trial that's the key. It's the response to the trial. Um, It might also share with your kids that you were like them. I've just noticed with my own children that I end up having opportunity after opportunity to share these stories as they, you know, are coming to me and we're dealing with their life trials. Uh, But it might be important to share a few of these. One of the stories that we may we we need to make sure we're sharing with our kids is that what I call the the who am I story. When did you realize and get a really good identity or idea of who you are? Everybody, you may have had that moment when 
you know, you were tempted or somebody asked you to do something that was against your value system and maybe you did do it or maybe you didn't, but you really started to come to this realization that, you know what, I, I'm better than that, you know, or the identity that you realize that you could probably, you can, you could be a doctor or you could, you could get into this school that you want to get into. And you started to form your identity as a teacher or as a, a, you know, a mathematician or a scientist. That's the who am I story. And I think kids, especially like my college kids, need to know how I came to know who I was. So I try to share that story. Another story you could share is the what matters most story, like where you actually learned a very important value lesson on one of your values. And you just share the story. I remember working on Sunday uh, at a golf course my entire life, uh, I was always taught, you don't work on Sunday. Sunday's God's day. Give it to God. Well, I, you know, had a chance to work at a golf course, and that would give me free golfing opportunities. So I started working on Sunday, and I always felt bad about it. And then one day as I'm working on this Sunday, I'm driving a Cushman golf truck around the golf course and ended up crashing it right into a fence and ripped a fence down, basically, a big metal fence. And uh, I was thrown 20, 30 feet and messed up a little bit. And right then, as I'm walking back to get help uh, from my fellow workers, I realized, yeah, I don't value working on Sunday. I just don't value. I just don't value working on Sunday. So anyway, I ended up realizing that um, I, I need to I need to not work on Sunday anymore. And I walked right in and said, yeah, I've crashed this and I can't work on Sundays anymore. (laughs) Anyway, they looked at me like, okay, but that was a really interesting story to share with my kids. And uh, we're going to constantly be talking more about the stories we need to be sharing because they're not going to learn something that you don't share. But some of these stories are, are groundbreaking and it actually makes you more human in their eyes. We'll continue the journey, folks. More straight ahead. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. Welcome back, folks. You know, the life of a police officer sounds difficult, doesn't it? Dealing with theft and accidents, seeing the most uh, traumatic events of people's lives, murders on top of all of that. You know, you think the last thing on their mind would be uh, anything about their untucked shirt. But experts are looking into the daily life of a police op- police officers, and it seems like some administration officials are so concerned with trivial rules that an untucked shirt or a missing hat may be the biggest worry in a cop's mind, even after saving someone's life. Is administration of police force corrupting or burdening the justice system? Well, a few months back, I spoke with John Shane, a professor at John Jay College of Criminal Justice, to help us understand the kind of stresses police deal with in their everyday lives. Uh, it was based on an article from Marketplace.org and entitled The Cost of Stress in the Police Force. I started the interview by asking, is police work really a thankless job? Well, yeah, you do have a point there. I, I, I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll stop short of saying it, it's thankless. There are there are certainly a lot of thankless moments. Yeah, that the pub, that the public certainly doesn't understand. But there are there's a lot of you know good that uh, you know the police contribute to society you in bet. terms of you know, recreational opportunities, economic opportunities. Uh, you cannot have a viable community with employment, recreation, good schools. 
without having a very strong uh, police force. And, you know, yes, uh, no, nobody likes when the lights are, are turned on behind them while they're traveling down the road uh, above the speed limit, you know, but there, there are good reasons for that. And, and, you know, discretion certainly plays a lot into how police officers interact with members of the community. But, yes, you are right, uh, the stresses of the day-to-day operations of policing, uh, I think the research bears... Uh, bears us out are are much more detrimental than the operational aspects of policing. Oh, yeah. In fact, this article that we were citing, the cost of stress in the police force, I guess there's there's an organization called Cop to Cop, which is a 24-hour hotline that fields up to 850 calls every month for stressed out police officers. And the, the, the leader of that, Sherry Casta, Castagiano, said um, that she, she's found that it's one thing's the trauma, right, of just having being a cop and exposure to murder, car accidents and hurt kids. But she said what may be even a bigger issue is simply what happens after the car chase is over. The, you know, the leave, the administrative leave and having to deal with administration. Do you see that, John, in your research with police officers, that there's a lot of tension just between the, the administration of the police officers and the cops? The, the answer is 100 percent yes. Mm. Uh, I know Cherie very well. When she started Cop to Cop, I was working in the Newark Police Department, and my division and myself and a couple others were instrumental in getting that operation up and running. Oh, great. Between the Newark Police Department and you know, University Hospital at the time. So we're going back now probably to about uh, 1996, 97, wow. somewhere around there. So it's up around 20 years. But the research that I've done and uh, the interviews that I've done with police officers have certainly bear witness to the fact that it is the administrative side of policing that is much more detrimental to their emotional well-being and their stress levels than it is the operation. Mm. And and a lot of this stuff centers on things like constantly being second-guessed in the work that they do, constantly having their decisions overridden, constantly being subjected to an enormous policy and procedures manual that uh, covers literally everything you could think of from the way you have to wear your uniform and your shoes and your hat to how you are to conduct yourself during a police pursuit and the reports that you are, you know, required to file and the level of bureaucracy. And most people have no real good conception of how policing is structured. You know, the, the image that everybody has is that of, you know, the cops television show or these glamorized yeah. uh, Hollywood-style NYPD sorts of things. Yeah. But the, the reality of police work is that most police departments around the country are about 15 police officers. Some are very, very, uh, very small. They're nothing like the NYPD. And there's a tremendous amount of bureaucracy and oversight that wears on you on a day-to-day basis and until it eventually wears you down into something like suicide or alcohol or other performance problems. Oh, and then the the political side of it. And I mean, I, I was an EMT on an ambulance, and you'd go to this, you'd go to the scene, and it's dangerous. And we'd even sit outside and wait for the cops to go in for the dangerous thing, and then clear the scene, and then we would go in and take care of people. But what was so amazing to me is after all the intensity and getting everything done, and you finally you risk life and limb, and you get to the hospital, you get the patient taken care of, then you still have a half hour to 40 minutes of paperwork. 
And and then to have your leader come in and say, now what was this? And start questioning your paperwork. You're like, holy cow. I mean, yeah, that, it's exactly stressful. And, 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 the, and the, the idea of liability looms large behind that. Yeah. And the fact that your hospital is going to be sued, you're going to be sued personally, you're going to be held accountable for a decision that you made to save someone's life within two seconds, and someone's going to take six months behind the scenes to critique your ideas with the, with the best law books and everything else, say, well, no, what you did was wrong, uh, and we're going to prove it to you, and here's how it works. Mm. That's a very difficult proposition to be in on a day-to-day basis for 20, 25 years of your, of your career. Oh, and and, and you, you saw it in those funerals of those officers that were shot in New York when there was the, you know, the people that – the officers that turned their back to Mayor de Blasio and that whole kind of situation. But there's incredible tension and these people are giving their lives and the majority are just good folk, right? They're just good people but they don't feel like they have their leaders, their administration backing them. Yeah, there, there's been a lot of very, very good research uh, from the 1970s into the 1980s about the differences between man- what are known as management cops and operational police officers. And those at the line level many, many times feel as though the people in management don't support them, don't understand what it is they're facing, have forgotten where they've come from, and suddenly they have this management persona that is antithetical to everything that's going on in the field. Hmm. Yeah. Now, I, look, I respect the fact that the community has to have the right to complain. They have to have an avenue for redress. And, you know, everybody has to, you know, be heard. Because there are times when police officers don't act the right way. We, I think we all know that. Right, right. But to have routine mundane, everyday decisions questioned, because that is essentially what we pay police officers to do. We pay the police to make decisions on our behalf, uh, in our best interest, to keep us safe um, from all sorts of things. And at every single turn, there always seems to be someone who says, well, you know, the police could have done this, that, and the other thing, and because they didn't, we're going to hold them accountable, we're going to prefer departmental charges against them. And, you know, next thing you know, somebody's being suspended for a decision they made that's perfectly within their right, but because someone feels that they should they, they should have done something else, yeah. that they are now subject to departmental criticism. An example you give is just simply the uniform, right? So you, you they could be just simply nitpicked in their meeting, their pre-whatever meeting, just for their wrong sock colors or whatever, and um, all of a sudden – we're not only being nitpicked for what I do on the street, but I'm also now have to be, be I guess, perfect at literally everything because one complaint will come down on me. Yeah, and th- it's those very sorts of things that weigh on you day in and day out. You see, if you face a man with a gun, if you face a car chase or a fight in the street or a domestic call or a car stop that is uh, a little bit hazardous, they are brief, momentary points in time. They come and they go. Yeah. And you can recover from them. You know, you, you sit back in your car after the episode and you think about what happened. You have time to calm down. But the rule book in a police department, the rules, the regulations, the policies, the overbearing autocratic supervisor who got his or her job through nepotism and is certainly not qualified to sit there, 
has authority over you. And that authority never goes away. You either leave the, the police organization or you learn to cope with those things. And unfortunately, there's no real coping mechanism when you've got an overbearing autocratic boss who can turn to a 700-page book and find something that you've done wrong at every single turn. Mm. That never leaves you. Where the car chase will leave you and the domestic violence episode will leave you after a brief moment, the rule book and management never leave you. You either leave police work or you learn to live with it. Well, and that's learning a... to live with it that, that... often means turning to drugs, alcohol, yeah. domestic violence, you know, other maladaptive behaviors. Well, and maladaptive behaviors that then may be acted out in your job again. It, it's, well, of course they are. Yeah, I mean, but what's like use of force and courtesy and all sorts of other. Things. I mean, you're talking about a 700 page rule book that's just the rule book of being the cop. That's not even just the laws they need to uphold, right? That's just the cop rule book. Right. That is the rule book of the organization. Are they and if you, it, it's very simply stated. If you were to go online uh, onto the internet and and Google something like uh, policy manual or department procedures or uh, some, something like rules and regulations, you can find organizational examples from across the country. Mm. And every one of them is two, three, four, five, six hundred pages. There's some on there that are nine hundred pages long. <laughs> Nobody could possibly uh, be expected to memorize that, and yet. Someone somewhere knows what's embedded on page 543, and they're going to pull it out and use it against you. Yeah. And they may not even use it against you in the moment. They just may use it against you the minute there's a complaint. It's, 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 well, a, it, it's tense. Yeah. That, see, that, that's part of the problem because the human experience cannot be mathematized, right? It, right. It, it's it, not by rote. It's, it's so really situational. Sort of a, yeah. A, a, yes, it's situational. It's discretionary. And someone always has a counterexample of what you should have done uh, in that moment. And that person, unfortunately, is someone sitting behind a desk somewhere who has all the time and decision-making power in the world, but you had to do this in three and a half minutes on the scene of an incident. That was Dr. John Shane. Uh, We'll be hearing more uh, from him next hour about the pressure on the police force. The Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1 855 Chat BYU. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. You know, we just learned a lot about uh, how the breakups impact us. Maybe it's some of those breakups that are keeping people from wanting to move forward and date anyway. I have a lot of clients that come and talk to me and they're like, oh, is my. Is my millennial or my young adult ever going to get married? And, you know, as somebody that looks over, you know, a desk every day from a young millennial, the answer to that is obviously no. No, they're not. It's never going to happen. But a lot of people are like, that's fine. That's fine. I don't want my kid married yet. You know? Interesting. Uh, we've had we've had some great guests on recently um, that... Of course, you don't need to push your kid to get married, but there will be a point where you'll be thinking, seriously, are you ever going to get married? When is this going to happen? 
So we wanted today to, I wanted to spend a little bit of time in the coach's corner talking about marriage. Mowage. And it, when you think about it, it's not always, you know, it's, it's not always that we, we just are choosing not to get married. I mean, there are a lot of reasons why people aren't dating, aren't getting married. But w- there's, there's certain things that have to be there. And, and if somebody wants to get married, there's four needs I teach that have to be in play. You, you, you got to want four things while you're dating to create, I think, some movement. The first one is you got to be, you got to want to be in the game. Um, And we had uh, a great expert on Brian Willoughby here from Brigham Young University that talked about uh, a few, a week ago or so about the fact that so many people are missing the market. They're not even in the dating game. They're just not in it. They may have taken themselves out while they're finishing a program. You know, they're finishing their degree. Many people decide that they're not even going to date seriously until they are older, until they have finished school, for example. Or some will say, I'm not going to date seriously till I'm through my first year of law school or until I'm done with medical school or until I've, you know, until I finish this program or this certificate or I'm back from an internship. And the minute you set that that goal in your head that you're not going to do something until then – you may be removing yourself from the game. In the end, you've got to you've got to be available when people are available. And I think a lot of us, uh, and especially, and we're doing them for good reasons. There's a lot of uh, kids that go on LDS missions, and they remove themselves for two years to go on an LDS mission, and they're not in the dating game for two years. Now, many people would say, "Well, I know, but that's fine." But you'll come back, and there's other people to date. Well, except. Um, a lot of times you date who you know and you date your the people from your cohort, the people from your age group. And when you pull yourself out for an extended period of time from an, an age group and a, and a group of people that you know, you actually might be shrinking or the, the size of the market around you might be shrinking as you're out of the game. And you just assume you can inject yourself back into that market and all of a sudden find your partner. But that may not always be the case. Like uh, like Brian Willoughby was teaching us, the ideal age for the happiest marriages, believe it or not, are ages 22 to 25. We've talked about other research on the show that said if you got married at 29, you'll you'll be the ha- you'll have a good marriage. But the research shows what you'll have is the least likely marriage to divorce. That doesn't necessarily equate to the happiest marriage. Happiest marriages with the least likely chance of divorcing happen between 22 and 25. And again, if you're planning on – if you're 27 by the time you're deciding to get married, you may be you know, out of the market, out of the game. So there's something going on obviously because people are choosing to get married older. Another reason is simply because they, they don't necessarily have a pro-marriage role model. For example, uh, their parents are sitting there saying, do not get married young. Don't get married young. Get, just wait, wait. Get your degree. Once you've got your degree. So even the parents are pushing, wait to get the degree. But then parents, if you're pushing your children to wait, then you shouldn't be surprised when they do. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. You can't really have it both ways. Yeah, but you didn't know this guy, Matt. This guy was such a loser. <laughs> you did not know this guy. 
So if you want to promote marriage in your life with your kids and your young adults, then you've got to be a pro-marriage parent. That might also mean you've got to like being married yourself. If your kids see that you hate marriage, that might be another reason why these millennials are saying, I don't know if I want to go there. My mom hates it. My dad can't stand it. If you don't make marriage look appealing, then why would we expect people to do it? So one of the benefits of being a millennial today is you, you've you seen how your parents have handled their lives. So that may be one reason you're choosing not to be in the game is you never had a pro-marriage role model. You never had somebody that saw the benefit or the need or the love of it. Another reason um, that uh, we've talked about recently on the show, too, is that you got to want it. And there's a big uh, issue with attachment that they're finding out that your ability to attach to another human being is probably one of the most important skills or tools you've got in your life. Do you feel like, just as you're a listener today, do you feel like you have a really strong ability to connect in and attach in a healthy way to another person? Do you feel like you're healthy about it or do you feel like you're more desperate for them, needy for them? According to the research, uh, some of the latest research that uh, Dr. Vanita Mehta shared with us a while ago is you've got um, about uh, since in the last 20 years, since about 1988, that that people have become more unhealthily um, attached. So 60% of the people today have an unhealthy ability to attach. They don't attach well which was weird because 20 years ago, it was about 50% had an attachment issue. Only 50% had an attachment issue. Today, 60% have an attachment issue, which means only 40% of the people in your dating pool have the ability to, to attach in a healthy way. That might be another reason why people are prolonging marriage. So, and we talked about it, the fact if you if you don't have a strong attachment, then some tendencies you'll have. One thing is to just simply be, you know, um, basically not into wanting to get married. You actually are not pro marriage. You actually you, you don't want to marry a, but you actually don't see a need for it. So you become kind of an anti marriage evangelist. And if you start becoming somebody that doesn't need marriage then that will pretty much ensure you're not going to find somebody that's going to want you. Another thing we do is we get preoccupied. If I am not into healthy attachment, then I might get more preoccupied with my life, my business, my work, my degrees. And I think so some of these kids that are just too busy and they're prolonging their their idea of getting married, they just – it's not that they don't see a need for it. They want to get married. It's just going to happen after they're done with school. So imagine that you're dating somebody like that. That's a hard date. Somebody that doesn't is not anxiously wanting to be with you. Um, and so we'll just wait three more years. Then we cohabitate, and that creates other issues uh, as far as marriage stability. Uh, couples that do cohabitate before aren't happier. They are less likely to get married. They're less likely to to actually make the relationship work. So um, interesting, just interesting stats from the researchers. Um, the other thing that people tend to do if they're not necessarily uh, able to attach in a healthy way, they tend to fear relationships. 
And when they fear them, they're not so excited to get into them. And then the last simple rule is some people uh, just don't know how to date. They don't know how to do it. And they don't have the skills. They don't have the ability. They've never taken a class. They've never read a book. And they've never been good at it by just dating on their own. And it creates problems. So you got to want it. You got to be in the game. You got to have role models that are pro marriage and you got to know how to do it. And if you don't have those things, then it's going to, you're probably going to slow down your path. So, parents, you know, don't just sit there and complain. Sit down and talk to your kids. Is it one of those issues? Are they just not in the game? They're not around people to date. Where do you find a date today if you don't go to a bar? If you're somebody that's not going to go to a bar and drink, where do you find the date? At work? Well, I'm working. And they dissuade us from dating at work. Okay? So you can't find them necessarily at work. And if you're done with school or if you're not going to school, it's hard to find a date. And are you a great role model, parents? Have you taught your child, you know, the importance of relationships, the importance of marriage, that they're not disposable, that we don't just throw them away? Anyway, just a little uh, coach's corner for you. Instead of worrying about your child eventually getting married, why don't you just talk to them? Find out what's going on in their life. And uh, be their coach. Be their guide on the side. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. Game theory is the mathematical analysis of conflict resolution. So game theory obviously has its place in decision-making between international businessmen, heads of state. But does it also have the same impact with your five-year-old child? Dr. Kevin Zolman is an associate professor of philosophy at Carnegie Mellon University and the author of the book, The Game Theorist's Guide to Parenting, and explained with uh, to us not long ago um, that it actually does. There's a lot of power in these theories and they can impact our kids very positively. He said, I began, oh no, I began the interview um, with Dr. Zolman by asking if he could explain what game theory is and why it is being used in parenting. Game theory, we call it the science of strategic thinking. It's a, a theory that's been used to think about negotiation, but also other types of theory that was invented in the 1940s and used a lot in economics and political science and psychology and, and related fields. Um, But as you said, for the most part, it was applied to sort of big scale decisions like international negotiation or 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 business decisions. And one of the things that my co-author and I sort of figured out as we were starting to work on the book is that a lot of these big scale strategies are strategies that you can employ in the home with your kids. And even though it's maybe not as uh, monumental a decision as the decision whether to sign a treaty, nonetheless, you can get a lot you can get a lot of the same benefits out of using game theory to try and reduce conflict in your home, just like you can reduce it in international relations. Yeah, right. And it's, I mean, I guess when I when I think of it, um, I've never necessarily, well, I guess I have sensed it as a mathematical equation, but it's, it's almost, the game gets complicated because you can start to actually measure outcomes of how the game is played. And if you alter one part of the game, then you can start to see uh, how it would alter the, the outcome as well, right? 
Exactly. And that's one of the things that game theory has really shown is that sometimes surprising little changes in the way that you structure how two people interact can radically alter the way the outcome proceeds. And so one of the things we do in the book, we try and take the mathematics away because, of course, not everybody wants right. to read a bunch of equations. Boring, right? Yeah, exactly. But what we try and do is distill the lessons that the mathematics teaches us presented in a way that's, that's understandable and clear and easy for people to, to put to use in their own homes. And exactly that, you can make these small changes that maybe you wouldn't have even thought were a big deal, but that might make a big difference in how the outcomes with your negotiations with your kids or between your kids uh, turn out. Okay, let me give a naive ex- example and then start teaching us. Okay, so okay, sure. if we're going to do an arm wrestle and I'm going to fight against you and compete against you, um, I guess I, I mean, I would probably win fewer times if we are competing, but if I would learn to cooperate, and even let you win sometimes so you would let me win sometimes and we create a spirit of cooperation, we together could win more together than we could competing. Exactly. That, that's a great example because it's one of the things that game theory teaches you is that it's, it's uh, oftentimes if you can find ways to make mutually beneficial or win-win outcomes, that's good for everybody. Now, that's easy to say in theory, but right. sometimes hard in practice. So one of the things, like with your example, say you and I have to arm wrestle over and over, but we want to sort of do this with minimal effort, right? So right. I, I don't care so much about winning. I just don't want to get tired, and the same for you. We could fight each time and try as hard as we could, or we could make an agreement where with the agreement we might take turns. I'll let you win one, then you let me win one. And if we do that, then we can both end up the same. Each of us win equal numbers, but with minimal effort. The critical thing is how do you how do you enforce that? Right. So if, you know, if if it's if if we're just going to arm wrestle once, and I say, oh, I'll let you win. Well, it doesn't seem like something that I might follow through on. Maybe I'll try and trick you, and then try and win myself. And so, the one of the things that game theory uh, has shown is that repeating the interaction is really important. So it's really important in your story that we arm wrestle several times in a row. Yeah. That way, we can make an agreement. I'll let you win this time, but you've got to let me win the next time. And then if you do that, then I'll let you win the third time. Hmm. So we can make an agreement that becomes, uh, becomes one that we'll keep to precisely because the threat of the future. I could always retaliate on you in the future, and that keeps you sort of in line yeah. uh, today. And which is why this is a brilliant, seemingly brilliant technique to, to use with the, your children because – they're going to be in, you know, reciprocal, interactive relationships over time. Exactly, exactly. And so one of the things we have a chapter about this in the book, we talk about how it is that you can design interactions that maybe are going badly with your kids in order to try and make them repeated in a more, you know, condensed way. So, for instance, you know, if your kids have to cooperate to pick up the room, maybe one of them shirks on, on you know, his responsibilities and sits out and lets his sister do all the cleaning. And right. She gets mad. Well, what you can do is you can say, instead of just saying, clean up the room, you can say, okay, the little, you know, your son is going to pick up one toy. Then your daughter will pick up one toy. Then your son will pick up one <laughs> toy, right? And by doing it that way, the kids can see, well, if I don't pick up the toy, then my sister isn't going to pick up her toy. And Interesting. And we're not getting out of here. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Because so many times as parents, we would just divide the divide and conquer. Great. You do this side, you do this side, but the other person may not ever do their side. 
Exactly. But if you do it this way and then you pr- say promise a reward or, or threaten a punishment if, if, if the room doesn't get clean or if it does get clean, then the kids can see, ah, our best strategy is to cooperate with one another in order to get the ice cream reward for Holy having clean. cow. Now, is this um, something that happens in nature naturally? I mean, do, do two monkeys do it this way? <laughs> Yes, actually, my favorite example of this is 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 a bit creepy, but I kind of like it nonetheless. Is with vampire bats. Oh yeah. So they, these are real things, uh, and if your listeners didn't know that, they might not sleep tonight. But <laughs> they really do exist. They they live in caves during the day and fly out and look for mammals whose blood they can eat uh, uh, at night. Ugh. And when they come back to the cave, you know, it's hard to find the uh, hard to find the big enough mammals. So sometimes they don't eat. And so if one didn't eat during the night, he'll walk up to a friend and he'll ask for some food from the friend. And apparently, it looks as though they, they implement exactly this strategy. They remember each other, and if they see that, that somebody who had helped them out comes begging for food, they'll help them out. Wow. Nature. Nature, yeah. <laughs> That's amazing. And yet we all fight with each other. Exactly. Um, <laughs> not crazy. So give us a, teach us another one. So, so learning how to cooperate. Uh, so let me get straight. In the book, you teach the principles and then you give examples for how, how to get that principle to be applied? Exactly. So each chapter of the book looks at a different parenting dilemma. You know, where your kids are fighting, or they can't decide how to how to uh, split things fairly, or you they never listen to you when you threaten to punish them, or something like this. And then we walk people through the sort of lessons of game theory as they apply to that specific case, and then at the end conclude with you know how can you put this to use to solve similar problems that a parent might have. Hmm. Honestly, that is it's it's brilliant um, because too we are we are converting them into a cooperative mentality, right? We're, we're fostering a cooperative mentality. That's exactly right. And, you know, game theory was accused of, and I think, you know, somewhat fairly in the early days, of being really about conflict. It was invented to deal with the Cold War, and so there was lots of analysis of what were called zero-sum games, games where if I win, then you have to lose, and vice mm-hmm. versa. But modern game theory is much is much uh, nicer and friendlier than that. And really, we started to turn to understand games where there are cooperative, what are called cooperative solutions, win-win solutions. And one of the things that we emphasize in the book is that by showing your kids the various strategies that they can learn to cooperate with one another, not only are you reducing the conflict in your household, but you're also teaching them lessons that they can take with them well into their adulthood because of the same strategies that work between brother and sister are going to work between husband and wife or between uh, uh, two employees that can't get along or in any number of different contexts uh, in adulthood. Oh, man, that's good. Uh, give, us, um, give us another example. What, what's another example of fostering cooperation with our kids, getting them to um, – to even maybe just even cooperate with the schedule. Yeah, with the schedule. So that's another one that's really that's really tricky, right? Kids don't want to go to bed. Right. They want to do something else. Or they want to keep watching TV. And so, how can you get them not just to cooperate with each other, but to cooperate with you, the parents? <laughs> yeah. Um, one of the things that we look into is different strategies that parents can use to either punish or reward their kids for engaging in behavior that the parents want them to do. The classic example that we talk about, the one everybody knows, is the dad who threatens to turn the car around if the kids don't behave in the back seat. <laughs> yeah. right? We all know the story, and we all know why the story doesn't work, because 
dad wants to go on vacation too, and so he doesn't want to follow through on that threat. Game theorists have a term for this. It's called a non-credible threat. And the idea here is, of course, the kids are smart enough usually to figure out that dad's not serious. He doesn't want to cancel the, 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 uh, the family vacation. So what one of the things we talk about is we talk about how parents can design threats or, or, or rewards, punishments or rewards, that they, uh, that they want to follow through on. So one of the suggestions we give is instead of threatening to end the vacation, what dad could have done uh, is say, well, we're still going on vacation, but instead of going to the amusement park on Saturday, we're going to go to the museum. Oh, there you go. Right. So that's something the kids are going to go, well, dad likes museums, so he's going to want to do that. And so now we should behave because dad will actually follow through on his threat. That's just (laughs) one example. But we give several different ways that you can make your threats or threats of punishment here credible. I mean, sure, it's ruining museums for children, but (laughs) you still, it was credible. It's a credible threat. And and that's not the only thing. No, that's great. We we also talk about other things where, you know, you could, if, say, one of your children is misbehaving, you could threaten to replace their favorite activity with one of their brother or sister's favorite activities, right? So that's the case where, where, again, um, brother or sister say, oh, you know, this is exciting. Maybe I can get to do more things that I want to do. And the one who's misbehaving says, oh, I better be careful because, of course, dad's going to do that. Um, mm. uh, I love this. We're speaking with Dr. Kevin Zolman uh, from Co- Carnegie Mellon University, and he's the author of the um, the book, The Game Theorist's Guide to Parenting. It really is allowing uh, people to interact in a way that I guess is more productive. It's 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 more real for the players. You're allowing them to to see kind of a cause and effect relationship to what they want. Exactly. And and one of the things I find, at least, and maybe I'm just abnormal in this respect, is that I sometimes don't even realize to myself how much I care about something until I really think through, you know, well, what would I be willing to do to get it? And so I think one of the things that's useful about the auctions is it's not just that it gets chores done, although that's, of course, a benefit, yeah. but it's that it really helps your kids to start the process of thinking through, well, I want to name the family dog, but do I really, how much do I want it? And do I want it more than my sister? Hmm. That's the critical thing is that, you know, kids think, well, I want to do it, and so therefore I ought to do it. But they, don't, they haven't yet gotten to the point where they start thinking about, well, how much does she want to do it? And how does that compare to how much I want to do it? Yeah. Is, um, where does the fairness idea come in? A lot of times I hear kids complaining that something's not fair. Yeah. And yeah. so how, how do you handle fairness? This is a really interesting topic, and is one. This my co-author was the uh, person who really investigated this. And one of the things that surprised both of us when we found it out is that there really are actually two different ideas of fairness, and kids learn them at different stages. So the first one is the is the sort of jealous notion of fairness. That's the it's unfair because he got more than me, mm-hmm. um, and that arises at a very young age. I mean, kids develop it really early on, and any parent I think knows. You know, the kids will be in tears as soon as their uh, friend gets more candy at the birthday party or something. The other notion of fairness, the one that that is sort of you might think of as the more mature, more sophisticated notion of fairness, is that it's unfair when I get more than him. Hmm. And that notion of fairness doesn't really set in until kids are more like seven or eight years old. 
So that the idea that kids might develop a, a, a dislike for getting too much more for themselves than somebody else gets doesn't set in until much later. So one of the things we talk about is how you can help to teach your kids that it, unfairness goes both ways and how you can set up situations to encourage younger kids to be fair with their brother and sister, even though they might not have yet developed this notion of fairness that, uh, that uh, comes at a later age. Do you – so do you – is there a game? Is there a uh, – I'm just trying to think of how that would look um, to create th- the fairness both ways. I mean it's, a, it's an interesting idea. I have never thought of it. When I get more, that's, that's kind of a different level of maturity. But you know, in our world, we kind of say, well, if you're getting more, just keep getting it. Yeah. Certainly. I mean, one of the jokes that, that, that my co-author and I shared is, you know, there's certainly a good number of people in the public eye that we can think of who maybe haven't got to that eight-year-old stage yet. <laughs> no, and some of them are running for president. Um, but it's a uh, – one of the things – when I was a divorce mediator, we would always say, great, make the deal, and then let's just be willing to reverse it. Uh-huh. So if, you're, if we can reverse the deal and it can go either way, yeah. then it seems fair. Yeah, yeah, that's so game theorists have a name for it and it's called envy free. So what that means is if both parties are indifferent between which side of the deal they get, then it's envy free. I don't envy what you got because I'm I don't desire what you have any more than what I have. Hmm. And so game theorists are really interested in how do you design negotiations so that you produce these kinds of envy free outcomes. Is it in the end, your goal with the book and games theory, summarize it. So what we wanted to do was we wanted to use this sort of sometimes esoteric and very complicated theory and distill the lessons so that people who don't have the time or desire to really dig into it can take advantage of it. Yeah. And so we wanted to take these ideas that had been sort of floating around in academic circles for a long time and known, you know, taught in business school and taught in political science, and give it so that the parent can really get the idea quickly, put it to use in their home, without necessarily having to learn all the bells and whistles and details that the sometimes very complicated theory uh, would require if you were to, say, take a college class in it. Yeah, you don't need a PhD for this one. Exactly. Unless you want to know it. Unless you want to know it. Of, right. course, I, of course, you know, I love it. So, I, so I it, it was worth the PhD. <laughs> As we wrap it up, Kevin, what would you say, what's the one thing that parents should remember to, to that's just a basic rule that might, you know, very easily get them into kind of the games theory mentality? Absolutely. One of the critical things with game theory is you've got to think about you've got to think about the interaction from the perspective of the other person. So it's very easy for a parent to say, well, of course, I wouldn't, you know, uh, skip my homework every day because I know grades are important. But your young teenage daughter might not think about it that way because hmm. she has different priorities and she's thinking about things in a, in a different way. She's thinking about the future differently than you do. And so what's always very important is to think about not what would you do in that situation, but Given your, how your kids think about the world, what will they do? I think that's one of the real central insights that game theory can, can present. Great stuff. Dr. Kevin Zolman, thank you so much for your work and for uh, the book, The Game Theorist's Guide to Parenting. Thanks for being with us. Oh, yeah. Thank you.
Appreciate it. Uh, again, how the science of strategic thinking can help you deal with the toughest negotiators you know, your kids. The book's written by uh, Paul Rayburn and Dr. Kevin Zolman. Excellent stuff, folks. Hey, take we'll take a break. We'll be right back. Do a little Coach's Corner. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Stick with us. Welcome back, friends. Uh, I've been uh, talking recently, uh, last hour or two included, about um, the lessons we could teach our kids. And really by just having different discussions and maybe better discussions about life. We always talk on the show about resiliency and and creating a, a more resilient family. Part of resiliency is helping our kids understand that life is hard and you can get through it. And and really, when it comes down to it, too, that you're already uh, able to handle a lot more than you think you are. And I think one of the things that really could help us convey this message to our children and our family are the stories we tell. So some of the stories I think we should make sure we're telling are the Who Am I story, which is where you share with your kids very clearly how you came to know who you are in this world. If you're a spiritual person, that could be your story about your conversion, uh, about why you believe in a higher purpose and how that higher purpose helps you understand how you're supposed to respond today in your daily life. The lesson could also uh, get into the Who Am I story could be about what, what you were called to accomplish on this earth, how you came to understand your specific role um, and it might even be as a father, as a mother, as a friend, as a doctor, whatever your profession is, how you came to understand that role. Um, but the kids need to know that you didn't start this world just knowing you were going to do something. You had to figure it out. And it starts to set up this idea that there is power in looking for your calling in life. Also, you could have a great discussion about that. Talk to them about their passions. Talk to them about what they feel in their heart uh, deeply that is uniquely theirs to bring to the world, um, and then share how you specifically discerned what you were supposed to do. Another conversation you can have is that life, uh, the life lessons you learn from loss, right? We've all lost somebody dear to us, or we've lost a car that we loved so much and we had put so much time and energy into, or we lost, um, you know, a position or a toy or a something. We've all had loss in our lives. And the conversation that we can have with our kids about loss is so in, is so valuable because it's not going away. We are all going to have loss in life. So let's normalize loss by simply saying, you know what, this is how I dealt with my loss. And you might be able to tell a story where a business partner hurt you or, uh, you know, a spouse did something um, and you ended up ending the marriage or but talk about how loss hurt and um, how you made it through the hurt. Another story that you can tell is how to handle life stresses. You might talk to your kids in this one where you talk about how you've learned to handle your emotions, where a lot of times you want to blow up and freak out and get mad and punch somebody, but how you chose not to, or where you feel anxiety and stress 
and how you've learned to manage your anxiety and stress. Again, this teaches that we, we can learn that stress is normal. Wanting to punch somebody and get angry is normal. But you can then start to teach your kids specific situations where you learn to manage the anxiety and manage the stress. You can have a discussion about where they struggle with it and help them figure out how to turn off the fight or flight, right? How they can manage the emotion. Another great, I think, lesson and story we could talk to our kids about is the I can do hard things story. That's the story where you in your head honestly doubted maybe at first that you could accomplish something. You just couldn't see how it could be done. And it was overwhelming where you felt like there is no way I can do this. And then tell the story about how you overcame the hard thing and how you piece by piece slowly went through the journey of doing the hard thing. Talk about how it feels to overcome such hard things. Again, notice how this conversation, all of these conversations are setting up the idea that life has some hard edges, but each and every one of them we can get through. We can get through loss. We can get through doing the hard thing. We can uh, learn what our values and our principles are. We can, we can handle and figure out who we are even in a world that seems so dark. When you guide your kid, your child, through these discussions, um, don't just do it when the moment appears. Uh, sometimes it might be great to start teaching some of these lessons along the way, uh, not just when all of a sudden they need those lessons. Does that make sense? They might. It might be better that you've already told similar stories three or four times. Then when they run into the problem, they'll actually remember the stories you've been telling. But this is what makes resilient kids are resilient conversations about where mom and dad had to be resilient, right? We, we always talk about we want our kids to be more resilient, but the reality is resilient kids are, are groomed and taught by resilient parents and resilient families. So let's make our family conversations part of this process and uh, know that the stories and the sharing of the stories are really what create the more positive resilient symbols. Make sense? Basic uh, coaching 101 right there. We'll continue the journey, and uh, up next we're going to continue a discussion we were having last hour and revisit an interview about uh, the impact of why some of our police officers out there in the world might be so stressed. It simply might be the pressures that their administration are putting on them. Welcome back, folks. You know, uh, it seems like nobody has it harder than a police officer in today's day and age. You've got to be ready for so many different things. You've got to be willing to risk your life and uh, really to have the scrutiny of the public and as well as, as your bosses, your managers, the administration, city officials. Is administration and all of this pressure that, that comes down from above, um, is it corrupting or burdening the justice system? Well, our guest, uh, John Shane, we're revisiting an interview we did with him. He's a professor at uh, the John Jay College of Criminal Justice, and um, he's walking us through an article that he wrote for Marketplace.org titled The Cost of Stress in the Police Force. And I started the interview um, discussing the fact that the current political affairs that are going on in the country seem to have put cops in a position where they just can't win. Yeah, look, there's a lot of good research dating back uh, into the 1940s and the 1950s that talk about difficulties of, of policing and how police officers are, you know, 
street corner politicians and the, the sociology of police work that calls for the, you know, the wisdom of uh, Job and the, uh, the strength of Samson mm-hmm. and, and made use of this biblical analogy that if, if a man had all these qualities, he might be a good police officer. And there, there really is no other profession that is as fragmented as police work. And yeah. if you think about the way it's been conceptualized, it's a 24-hour, seven-day-a-week, 365-day-of-the-year catch-all agency. When all the other people go home, the people that take care of the trash and the people that take care of the animals and the people that take care of the homeless and the mentally ill, when they all go home at night at 5 o'clock in the afternoon... The only people left are the police. Yeah. And they've got to know a little bit about everything, about how to corral an animal, how to handle a mentally ill person, uh, how to handle the homeless. All these things that really have nothing to do with fighting crime, but yet the public has tasked them with it, and they don't understand the consequences of the fragmentation that they have caused. Mm. Oh, totally. What, what do you think um, as... You know, as a researcher, what do you think the impact of having everybody, you know, carrying a body camera? What what will that do? I mean, I guess in the downside, it just seems like, well, great. Now more administration can, you know, micromanage. But in the good side, it's, you know, maybe every cop now has a backup. Well, you look, uh, I was on uh, an evaluation team in the North Police Department in the mid-1990s when we started the Pioneer dash-mounted cameras in the vehicles, right? That right. is now morphed into body cameras. Yeah. I, I could tell you from my early experiences that the dash cam video would save a police officer more often than it would hurt a police hmm. officer. And I think uh, as time wears on, we're going to see that with body cameras. Yeah. What we see right now are these sound bites and these snippets of police officers who are either making mistakes who are, you know, really engaged in some sort of aberrant behavior. Right. What you don't see are the millions and millions and millions of interactions with citizens where police officers are helping them in some way or providing them with really, really good service. You're not going to see those. They're not going to make the nightly news. The shooting will, the bad shooting will, but the the ordinary service call will not. Yeah, we we do that. I believe... On this show, we do we we always try to do a hero story, and the easiest hero story to find, honestly, is either a firefighter or a police officer, and those are stories that aren't always told. But it's just where the cop just it's probably what's done every day, all day long, and and it seems like a big deal because we don't ever hear about it. Well, I you know I I, I should I should say you're, it's not that you're never going to hear of those stories. I should I probably shouldn't use such firm language, but what I mean to say is that the media is generally not attracted to those sorts of stories. I, I mean, I praise you for yeah. the effort. Yes, but yeah, they but don't. That's right. Media, yeah, they're they're not they're not really talking about Mm-mm. those things. They consider that well, this is what the police are supposed to do. Yeah. Um. So let's not let's not waste our time talking about the things that they should do. What what's the I future? You, if I were out there today, I'd rather have a body camera than not have one. Yeah. Oh yeah. Oh, wouldn't you? I would too. And I'd make sure it's on all the time. And I'd make sure I. I mean, you know, frame every picture because I. I want. I want. But see, think of that now. 
I guess what it is now, it's, it's, it's this trust but verify idea. Now it's really just verify. Trust, we may give well, you or we so may not, but verify it. That's a very good way to put it, yes. And everything is right away, let's go back to the body cam, let's go back to mm-hmm. the dash cam, and let's verify whether or not what was said was true. And, you know, those sorts of things have caught citizens in lies about the police officer. Yeah. Uh, but at the same time, it has it has ensnared a few cops that have done uh, the wrong thing, you know, purposely or just, you know, made, made mistakes. Which is good, right? And, and we, we want to stop the, the, that percent from making such serious mistakes. And also, we don't want to stress out our cops. We've got about a minute left. What would you say, John, about... What's what could we just do? What should we be like looking for or pushing for from our political leaders, maybe that might create a, a healthier, less stressful cop? Well, I think that there's a, there are a number of things. First of all, recruiting, uh, recruiting a a better quality police officer and establishing mandatory minimum standards instead of relying on you know, discretion in, discretion or nepotism that have been right. so flagrant in policing for years. Uh, the second thing is providing police officers with the best training possible. There's a wide variety of training uh, all across the country. It's not consistent. A lot of the training does not meet national standards. And the third thing is getting the community and our political leaders to understand what police work is actually like and, you know, running them through what's called a Citizens Police Academy, where the police department um, takes community leaders, clergy, members of the business community, runs them through what we call a Citizens Police Academy, uh, generally about 15 weeks, one a week, every night of the week for 15 weeks, to explain to them, you know, the constitutional limitations of policing. Yeah. And what it's like to be confronted with someone with a gun and make a decision in a fraction of a second. That was John Shane, again, professor at the John Jay College of Criminal Justice, trying to help us understand the the cost of uh, and the stress that these police officers are undertaking. Uh, again, they you know, everyone's like, well, yeah, they they signed up for it. But. Think about their role. Think about the position they've been placed in to um, – or put themselves in to protect. And I, I was just speaking with one the other day. It's It never ends. And a lot of – I mean they're not necessarily paid the most, but right? But you know where they make a lot of money is in overtime, not to mention the stress of being – having to make a lot of your money working overtime – Um, sometimes dealing with the more difficult uh, aspects and the complex situations that go on. So there are obviously some bad eggs, but there also are a lot of pretty amazing uh, people that are sitting in those cars all day and, again, show up. And their their job isn't to just show up at a school where there's a shooting. They actually have to show up and walk in that school or run in that school. So let's be careful. Let's let's also understand that the stresses are enormous – uh, mistakes are being made, obviously, but also a lot of amazing stuff being done every day. So you might want to take a second and thank a police officer that you see um, and also understand that certain uh, certain groups of people, certain cultures, certain uh, racial uh, and, and uh, ethnic backgrounds have not – don't feel like they can just feel safe. 
Um, notice that there's that disparity too, and that's a reality in the world we live in. But I think every one of us could try to make it all a little better for uh, everybody involved in these situations. We'll continue the journey, folks, doing what we can on the show to help you be the good in the world. This is The Matt Townsend Show. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. When you talk about morality, the reason we do what we do and why we do it, it's and we don't consciously sit there and say, I will now go try to look better by being morally superior to everybody. But we all know somebody that has to tell us when we're doing something wrong. Or I had friends growing up in high school that if I I would make a joke that they would laugh at, but then they'd be like, oh, Matt, shouldn't say that. And it it was hilarious. That's why they were laughing. And they were like, man, what's wrong with me? Why, Why do I say that? Because I must be such a misfit. Anyway, morality. And one of the things I talk a lot about when I work with my clients is we, we there's a thing called logical force. Okay, so logical force is when we make a decision based on logic, not morality. For example, um, if you have a friend that called you a name or embarrassed you at, a, at an event, it would be logical that you don't talk to her, I guess, for a week. Ignore her. So you're justified, right, because you're doing something that is right. If you went and interviewed your friends, nine out of your ten friends, if you had ten friends, Ben, nine out of ten of them would say, yeah, I'd be mad too, and I would ignore Stacy. I'd ignore her because that was totally rude. The problem is even if it's, even if it's logical for you to be mad, even if it's uh, – and you can see this in our political world. Even if it makes good political sense for you to put someone down – for you to destroy someone's career or, you know, credibility, it, just because it is logical and it it logically can be justified, it doesn't make it moral, right? Your morals, your moral value system and your logic system don't all they don't go together because many times the most moral thing you can do when you see something that's been done wrong, like let's go to the story of the guy that killed the lion. Um, I guess you could gang up and jump in and send it to everyone you know and show how moral you are. Or you could just shut your flapper and go make a donation to preserving animals, right? But no one would know about that. So what's the point? What's the point? Why would I do something that nobody knows about? I guess because it's moral. So when I think of a moral person, I think of a Gandhi, uh, a Buddha, Mother Teresa. These people didn't promote their actions. They just acted. All of a sudden, it's logical to defend yourself. You feel like you have to defend yourself. I guess one of the problems we run into in our society is we think we have a right, and that right means we have no responsibility. We have a right to say what we need to say, to use our voice, to be mad and to take a stand. And just because you have a moral right 
or a right, logical right, doesn't mean it's going to be moral and healthy for you. And remember, check your own gut. If Why do you need to post certain things? Look at what you're posting. If you're somebody that is constantly posting political things or constantly having to beat up the latest issue morally, um, why are we doing that? Ask yourself, what, does, what do I gain by being this type of person? In the end, you're probably not actually improving your moral system. In the end, your moral system is more between you, your God, you and your people around you, you and the followers that respect you and trust you. That's where your moral system creates strength, not in the masses necessarily. Unless you're somebody that is always in the masses uh, with people following you, I'd keep your moral compass fine-tuned to the people around you. Anyway, uh, closest to you, by the way. You're listening to the best of The Matt Townsend Show. Matt, if you could just go to a therapist, or if you didn't need to go to the therapist, and you could just do it yourself, we're going to put a lot of therapists out of business. I mean, therapists do great work, but many times they're just... They're, they're really just reflective listeners, right? They're listening well. And what would happen if you had a friend that was a, just a really good listener? Are you that kind of friend that you can perform that listening function, um, you know, for your partner to, to help get their emotions out? Oh, it's, it's not easy. I get it. I know. I know. It's not easy. And so um, when you think about it, and I, I see this a lot in my practice, there's, there's these signs, okay? I call them, you don't need to just always be, I don't know, totally ready and engaged to just listen to your partner. But there are times you have to be ready to be engaged and listen to your partner. There's three signs I look for, and I learned about them. Um, I learned about this concept as an emergency medical technician. So... Right after, uh, uh, when I was about 21, I guess, I was an EMT on an ambulance, and I was certified in, you know, life support or basic life support and uh, learned all the tools and the rules and, and how, to, how to basically take care of somebody in an ambulance on the way to the hospital. And one of the first things they taught us is you got to check vital signs, right? Vital signs, because you need to know where your patient is. There's a very basic baseline for where your patient is, and you need to check, you know, pulse, um, respirations. If you could, oxygenation, see how well they're oxygenating. You could take a, a blood pressure, just basic signs. And the neat thing about humans is we pretty much have these very basic vital signs. And then what happens is there's a very powerful um, pattern that doctors and, and hospitals use where when you come in and see them, you can say whatever you want to say about why, what you're feeling, and they'll be listening to you. But while they're listening to you, they're going to check your vital signs, right? They're going to check your temperature. They're going to check a bunch of different things. All of those are signs of something going on deeper down. And what I have found is just like we have it physiologically, we have vital signs. Emotionally, we have vital signs as well. So there's three signs I'm constantly looking for in the people that are around me. Negative emotion is a sign. There's a sign of something deeper going on. And if you see negative emotion in somebody, instead of yapping, instead of arguing and telling them your point of view, I wouldn't tell them. I would just try to understand where their emotion is coming from. 
So I look for negative emotion, I look for misunderstanding, and I look for mistrust. When I see those signs, I know I need to kind of get out of my agenda and get into the agenda of the other person, right? So if, if my if my spouse comes home and they're slamming doors, that's negative emotion. I should see that, pay attention to that. I should try to understand what's going on. Hey, babe, I can see you're frustrated. Tell me what's going on. I'm just mad because the kids took my whatever and I can't find it and I've got to go use it right now. There's frustration. Behind every negative emotion, you're going to hear a story. People want to tell their story because they would love the emotion to go away. So what if as humans, we could just start paying attention to the negative emotion, the misunderstandings. Misunderstanding simply means when something's going on and you don't know why it's going on and there's a misunderstanding. If, I'm, if, if I have a, a person that's, that's quiet and, and shuts down, I'm going to know they have negative emotion and I don't understand exactly why. I shouldn't just guess. Is this because of what happened last year? <laughs> I mean, last year's example of, of this same you know, behavior may not be very accurate. So I, what I'd love to do is recognize the emotion. You seem really upset. What's going on? Share with me why you're upset. Because if I could get the story, that would increase my understanding, right? And then if I could understand the person and not you know, make them worse, then they could trust me. So that's what we're looking for in our relationships. Emotional management, understanding, and trust. That's the best thing I've ever learned to know when I need to be listening to somebody. When I see that they're negative emotionally, when I don't understand why and I don't understand their reasoning, try to understand it, and do they trust me to share it? Anyway, that's where I'd start working with the people I love, the people I care about, a little coach's corner for you right there. Emotional management, it's hard stuff, let alone doing it with each other. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Hey, we've got a great treat uh, today. Again, Gaina Lynn Condi joins us. She's an author, recently published her book, You Are Magnificent. She's a popular motivational speaker, has appeared on many television and radio shows. And uh, we love having her on because she's so real. Thanks. And I mean that in the best way possible. It's what I try to lead out with. By the way, you have a son abroad on an LDS mission trip. Zimbabwe. Zimbabwe. The bottom of Africa. And interestingly, the leader of the Mormon church... Was just there. Was just there. He shows up. Shakes my kid's hand. How cool is that? Well, so way cool, except for, for those that are of LDS orientation, you know, you get one email a week, yeah. right? Yeah. So we've been on pins and needles waiting yeah, to hear. Because you knew he was going to be there. Right. So we know it happened Tuesday last week, so we were waiting, waiting Monday. So my son gets transferred. We hear this from someone. So we haven't even heard from him. So oh, we did wow. We so did see news media yeah. reports, yeah. and that's how we got the video. It was way cool. That's pretty awesome. Yeah, it is cool. You're Be- blessed. Just to, you know, see your kid walking and breathing. I know, just, just, yeah, without a worm. Yeah. <laughs> we talked about that last yeah. time. <laughs> <I> mean, <laughs> we need yeah. an update on that, but yeah. whatever. We'll get, we'll get to the update on the worm. <laughs> 
But by the way, every LDS missionary has you know brought home a worm or two. Uh, this is true. I, I brought home two slick and slider. I even named mine <laughs> because they were. I thought they were very close to me. So, Which they usually are. <laughs> they're way close. It's almost like I don't know. It's like they they knew me from the inside out. They understood you. <laughs> it's kind of gross, but totally true. So talk to me about, I mean, depression, about life. Life is hard. Yeah. So I don't mean to be Debbie Downer today, but I appreciate you saying I'm real. And you are real. I love that. I, You know, as I was driving in today to the studio, probably in 24, 36 hours, I've had four direct messages of people that are suicidal or someone they love. Oh, that wow. Is. But that's because you've talked about this a lot in the past, and mm-hmm. so everyone now thinks that they can go to Gaina Lynn and talk about yeah, it. Yeah, so my 40-year-old sister committed suicide four years ago, mm. and I have I speak a lot, but I always squeeze it in there. Yeah. And it's the elephant in the room. It's the thing no one wants to really talk about. But, it's, but by the way, you saying it helps us name, helps, name it way, to tame it name it to tame it and then four people want more help from it so they ha- they now know they can go to you yeah and you know what i had a i have a close friend that super articulate in giving me a word picture on my role cuz i have a minor in psychology which gets me nothing <laughs> call talk, call dr matt townsend yeah, if you that. really want real well. you know professional advice on this um but i will have the conversation i'll have it on a stage or in a book right yeah and she said i see you as the person in the middle of the turnabout on the road yeah and you are literally just saying kate go in that direction kate turn that's you know cool. go yeah. there and i thought that's that's healthy for me to yeah. not take ownership mm-hmm. and try to save but i do feel like it's a matter of life and death Right? You're like so, a signal. You can signal. A signal, signal. yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the thought I wanted to share is that a lot of people think suicide rates are highest during the holidays. Mm-hmm. And actually, it's it's uh, March to May. Which oh, is my it? Just, spring. That's yeah, spring. sad. Yeah. And the weather changes and you mm-hmm. think, oh, it's sunshiny. But any school teacher listening right now knows everyone has lost their living mind at yeah. school. They're, they're all stressed out right? of their head. Right. And so if anyone's been on the edge holding on tight yeah. all through the winter... That's... It can kind of trigger. So I think just be aware mm. that the people that you know that may be struggling may be struggling more now and you're not thinking that because you're not someone that's dealing with depression and anxiety right. and you're happy that the flowers are coming up and the sun is shining. Yeah. So reach out to some of those people. And then the other awareness I've had just in the last few days is classically I say this, but every time I'm still surprised I found out someone that's um, taking some antidepressants, yeah. I never even knew they had struggled. Had zero. Because we hide it so well, right? don't we? Right. And I, and I often say church, work, school, wherever you're associating with people on a regular basis, don't assume the happiest, most helpful, helpful person yeah. is not the one probably dying inside. Right. Right. Yeah. Because, totally. right, they're the ones that are smiling mm-hmm. and have, have probably learned some good coping skills. Yeah. I see the most successful people, the beautiful, the the healthiest, the wealthiest, the richest, the most troubled. Yeah. It's all so what that tells us is everyone. Everyone. That's yep. that's why I'm willing to have a conversation about that's it cool. no matter where, you know, a, a corporate event or an educational event or whatever. Yeah. I'll squeeze it in there. Um the thought I have to share often on this is it's a complicated issue and it's requiring big toolboxes. Mm, true. So my refrigerator breaks and the screwdriver doesn't fit. Yeah. I don't say, oh, 
I guess we're never getting that. Guess we'll never eat again. Yeah, we're never gonna get the you know milk out for my cocoa puffs because yeah. you know yeah. the the handle doesn't work. You go back to the toolbox and you find the screwdriver that fits, and then you go straight up, right? So true. To try it again. So hope is about coming up with the next plan B. Yeah. How do you do that? Like, I mean, and you're I th- I think you're uniquely gifted at helping people find hope. But how how do you find hope and where do you turn? So I'm going to be really honest with your listeners. I've struggled this week. I've had one of those weeks having, where just having any hope. Just feeling depleted. Yeah. On edge. Um I reached out to a friend of mine that's a therapist, right? And she's a friend and so I texted her. You don't have to pay her. <laughs> texted her on a Sunday <laughs> night, showed up in my PJs crying and she said all the things I know, right? Yeah. Yeah. So what I realized, though, is I wasn't seeking for the support I needed. Yeah, interesting. And what I was doing for self-care still wasn't cutting it, right? So there's yeah. times and seasons where maybe the tool you're using isn't working. Right. That's why you surround yourself with just a couple of people that are willing to help you keep building that toolbox. And if you, and if you, I guess that's the idea. So if this one's not working, but keep reaching yeah. for the next one. Yeah. So you need more and more. One of my favorite tools I share that literally always gets a pretty good response is massage. Oh yeah. And everyone's like, what? And, and after Meg's suicide, my, my grief was like, the grief was in my bones, in my muscles. Oh, I wow. felt it physically. Yeah. So regular massage kind of has helped work me that out. work that out. That's right? interesting. Yeah. So, I mean, there's a lot of happiness research, right? Yeah. And I I believe strongly in getting enough sleep and Have you heard about the cold shower one? No. It's true. Apparently, what? taking colder showers makes you less depressed. That seems counterintuitive. And po- because have you ever noticed that like, when you when you're having a warm, nice, hot shower, you tend to stay in there oh. longer, and it actually it does something where it kind of saps you Slows and drains you, down. you. But then by so they even say take a hot shower, take whatever shower you want, and then, and cold. then at the end just slowly start ratcheting up the cold, and then spend the last minute in there in more cold water, and it actually apparently kicks in your fight or flight response which then turns on more of your survival instincts and you create a different chemistry. There you have it, folks. Now that's cold showers. And yeah. it's, it's also good if you're lonely. <laughs> so it's, it kind of it and, helps in a variety of ways. And I heard it's good for the shine in your hair. Oh, really? Uh-huh. Yeah. yeah. I, I've never worried about that. Yeah. But that's <laughs> this uh, interesting. This is how less complicated it is for men. <laughs> <Totally>. <laughs> Let's just break it down. Hold on. Women worry about the shine in their hair? <laughs> Man, your hair is oh, so dull. How do you say that? I mean, like, do people look at industry. dull and shine? Oh, I did not know Full that. industry on just shining hair. Well, you know how you I do it. You last... don't wash your hair. If you don't wash it, it gets a little shiny. Oh, there's an industry for that, too. It's called dry shampoo. <laughs> oh, last brother. time I was here, I taught you about Instapots. I know. You're teaching me a lot. Yeah. Shiny and I appreciate hair. that. You're uh, this is... It's a twofer today. It's a total twofer. <laughs> uh, it's so sad. Anyway, we're speaking with Gaina Lynn Condi. Uh, go to her website, gainalyn.com. And um, she's teaching us today some tools. One thing, you need a bigger toolbox. Bigger toolbox so that the hope is the plan B. It, the oh. hope is not a feeling. Hopes, yeah. So that's the se- that's kind of the that's the second thing we'll do. Yeah. First, let's do what we can do. Right. And then th- this same therapist friend of mine taught me this principle, and I share it in the book that's out right now, that 
we often think like, well, I'm not feeling hopeful. It's not a feeling. Yeah. Hope is based on the next plan B. That's assuming plan A is not going to work, which yeah. gives me like permission to be like, why is everybody else like figuring <laughs> out their life and mine's falling apart? Right. Everybody else's kids going to Harvard. Everybody else's yeah. marriage is fabulous. Everyone else lost 25 pounds last right. week. No, no, no. Yeah. So think of the plan B, mm-hmm. right? And that. If you think about it, surround yourself with people that are like, wait, have you considered? Yeah, what about this? What about this? And that helps you continue to stay in the game. I like that. Yeah? I also like macaroni and cheese. It's my plan B usually. And Will Ferrell movies. I love those. Elf in July. It's fine. It's totally fine. And I mean, Christmas music. My kids yeah, think you, I need to see a therapist now just what's about that about? problem. Because you brought that up before, too. I have? Yeah. What's what's with the Christmas music? Thing? Listen, the other day I have packing anxiety. I'm going to California this weekend yeah. to speak. And I'm a very organized person, so everyone's kind of shocked when I share that tidbit. Yeah. I hate it. I hate thinking of all the what, options you of need the a weather. Bunch of, yeah. And I always want to get everything done at home. I'm big on I want to come home to everything done. So the other day I had to – I wanted to go through my closet and donate stuff I wasn't using, and I just was dragging. I thought, (laughs) this this calls for some good old Bing Crosby white Christmas. (laughs) No, really? I really did. And I turned it up just to the level that no one in my house could actually hear unless they came into the closet. I got it done in 15 minutes. I was done. And it just somehow reignites you. Yeah. It lights a fire in you. Uh, it does. But it's a complicated thing now because that's when my boy comes home too. That's when my boy left. Yeah, so now it creates, yeah. So now I'm having emotion that has nothing to do with <laughs> I think I know why you had a hard week. I know. It's true. No, there's, I think it's good. But you and I have talked off air that um, it's complicated about having your kid come no, home too. it really is. He comes home in seven months, you know, and all of a sudden <sighs> I'm like, ah. Yeah, Are we that, ready yeah. for this? Mm-mm. Yeah. Because we've gone to a new yeah. normal. It's true. I hope huh? he doesn't ever hear this. No, he won't. <laughs> I want you home, bud. I, I do. I do. I want you home, but then but then we have to go You're to gonna the You're going to go to BYU level. and live with Matt Townsend. Yeah, we'll we'll coach him up here. Yeah. Um, what else What else helps us through these darker times? Well, I Or think, the loss, even, of others. I think, um, for me, journaling's huge. And I think um, be aware of your isolation. That's why I reached mm. out to that friend on Sunday. Yeah. So one of the falsities that start to feel super true for someone that has long-term struggles with depression and anxiety, we're not talking 15-year-olds yeah. that think high school is how their life is going to be forever, right? We're talking like, you've been fighting this for a while and you're getting tired. The truth is we will not be better without you. Right. The this- lie that we start to believe is you know what, I'm dragging the whole world down and I should just check out. So you have to kind of challenge that. Yeah. This this same friend on Sunday said, okay, for this week, you can't trust anything your brain's saying. And that's, that's been, that that's was really, advice. my husband turned 50 yesterday. Oh, happy birthday. Yeah, and I, I was involved in two surprise parties for him, which almost put me over the edge. How nice of you, though. <laughs> by last night, by the second one, there was such a relief. And I looked at him in the middle of the, you know, the surprise happened and I said, this explains some of my crazy the last four yeah, days. This is it. I couldn't tell you what was really going on. <laughs> but don't trust what you're thinking. Yeah. And in that moment, she wasn't saying forever and ever. Yeah. It's just that you're in a place right now where you're needing some additional support. You're running on a little empty. You're emotionally drained. And until you get some of those things taken care of. So I would invite listeners that have decided at any level that the world will be better without them to not trust that. Don't trust that. That's a big fat lie. We yeah. will not be better without you. Even if you think your family, your extended family, your friend group, 
is so sick of hearing and seeing your depression. Yeah. It's okay. Not true. It's not true. I would give anything to have Meg right back. Yeah, because they still they'd have to then process that. Yes. So they still have all of their other problems of life and they have to process that. And I would just say this, I'm very aware of my inadequacies. I'm not so aware of yours, yeah, Matt. So true. I don't think you have any but I do. I'm just... I'll give you a list. That's why my wife always tells me not to trust anything I'm thinking. <laughs> She says the same thing to me, but I think it's different advice. Yeah, than what you got. Uh, yeah, and I think what she was trying to say is because I tend to be too much into solution mode. Sometimes yeah. I don't want to get stuck in victim. Yeah, slow. So down. I'm always like, "Hey, what, what, what should I do next?" And she's like, "Hey, how about just some self compassion?" So I would say, in closing, that yeah. would be one of my final tools: is Are you talking to yourself as gently as you talk to your friends? Oh, that's cool. Amen. I don't. No, we don't do that, mm. do we? We we beat ourselves yeah. up so bad. Yeah. Yeah. It's I mean, fair. even yesterday, the surprise party. How'd that go? <laughs> it, it went it went well. But he said when I when we everyone was hiding in the basement and when I said well, he thought we were going down for presents. And when I said, why don't you go down first? He knew that was a half a second before everyone said. Surprise. So you kind of ruined it. Yeah. And what do you think? <laughs> All morning, I've been like replaying in my mind as if we're going to do it again. Right. I was yeah. like, oh, I could have said, oh, wait, go ahead. Go down. And circle back. Yeah. I just didn't want to be the first one down and have them all go surprise. And then he was behind me. So I sent him down first. And why am I replaying that? Well, you got to let that go, don't you? Right. So that's my point is that self-compassion will be like, I rocked it as yeah. a wife. Well, and maybe, yeah. And maybe reframe it that it wasn't about who was first. Yeah. and Or that he had a clue in his head yeah. two seconds before it didn't take away from the joy of the people that right. showed up and That's the right. experience. And it was still shocking because even then he didn't know who was there yeah. and what was going on. Right. And so yeah. depression and anxiety, I think, is a lot of that getting stuck in your thinking. And I you know that. this. No, but that's powerful. Working with clients, right? Is yeah. that you just continually replay, replay, replay. And 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 I would just say for those that are out there that deal with long-term depression and anxiety – or those that have attempted suicide and are with us still, mm-hmm. you're the strongest people I know. You're amazing. You are. You know, I've had, uh, I, I spoke at one point to a lockdown facility of girls, mm. and I had this girl that wouldn't look up, hair in the face, scars all over her body, you know, pregnant, but young. And finally, she asked a question and looked up and said, what do you think about, I had shared about my sister, and she said, what do you think about those that have tried? And I said, what do I think about it? She's like, yeah, what do you think of those kind of people? I said, those kind of people are the strongest people I know. Yeah. She's like, what? Tears coming, right? Yeah. Because obviously she had been there. Yeah. I said, they've stayed in the fight, in the game, when all evidence has pointed towards giving up. Yeah. Right? Right. So I, I would just say, get tools and fill the toolbox with all the crazy stuff. Massage, crazy oils, medicine, good therapists. Cold showers. Yeah, cold showers. Little feral movies, Christmas music, <laughs> all of that. Yeah, and then and then make sure you're not isolating. Yeah, no, oh, that's beautiful. That's the way. I mean, again, it's fairly simple, but hard. It is hard. But simple. Yeah, the same therapist friend. She said, "I teach all this, right? But I forget it too. Yeah, right? we do. You know, we all do. Yeah, yeah. It's human nature, right? And and again, exactly. And you're, which just means you're. That's why you're needed because as you're going through this battle, you help us understand it better. Well, as Brene Brown says, braving the wilderness is messy. Yeah, 
And if you're willing to be in the arena, then you get to have a comment about my life. If you're not willing to be in the arena, which, Matt, you are. Then shut it. Thanks for being in the arena. Thank you for coming and uh, being part of the arena. Anytime. You're in the arena, too. Gaina Lynn Condi's her name. You won't want to miss it. Go to her website, Gaina Lynn, G-A-N-E-L-L-Y-N dot com. Craziest name ever. Craziest name ever. Her mother really wanted Loves to me. teach her a lesson. <laughs> Character. Gaina Lynn Condi. She's incredible. Uh, we'll continue the journey more straight ahead. A little uh, empty news. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Because life doesn't come with a handbook, you need a coach. Here's Dr. Matt and his coaching corner. Welcome back, friends, to the show. So much uh, left to cover in just so little time. We've got to get to some of our empty news headlines. Uh, How about this one? You apply for a job. Everyone loves a good job application, right? A woman applies for a job at a New Hampshire county jail. Um, and has been arrested because it turns out she was wanted in uh, on a charge in Maine. Like, I guess she forgot that as she was applying for a police job. Police say Christina Hoffs of Manchester applied for the job on Friday at Hillsborough County Department of Corrections. But workers soon realized that she was uh, being sought on a theft-related offense in Maine. Hoffs was taken into custody and taken to the police headquarters. She was scheduled for arraignment Monday. It's unknown if Hoff's uh, lawyer, um, uh, who is Hoff's lawyer, and no phone number can be found. So uh, she wasn't able to comment on that. Just remember that. Like when we did your background check, Becca, we learned a lot. Oh, yeah. Like you had escaped from clown college. I did. Yep. And then you had that jujitsu. an elephant with me. Yeah, that aggravated assault with jujitsu. Oh, right. Forgot about that. Yeah, in Brazil. Yeah, those are the days. Yeah. Be careful. Just be careful. Uh, a woman sues an Italian restaurant after a lasagna explodes. What? Yeah, volatile. And Got a Illinois... lot of explosions on the show today. I know, it's crazy. Exploding it... Hondas and... Hondas and lasagnas. And lasagnas. An Illinois woman is suing an Italian restaurant claiming an order of lasagna left her with mental anguish when it exploded with piping hot marinara sauce and burned her as she dug into it. Oh. Ah. Ah. That's some hot lasagna. Teresa Thomas filed the suit in Cook County Circuit Court seeking $50,000 from the restaurant. The alleged marinara blow-up happened when Thomas and her husband were having lunch at a restaurant on December 7th this past year. Thomas placed her left hand in her lap, picked up a fork with her right hand, and touched the tower of layered pasta, meat sauce, and cheese uh, with a fork. And right when – I guess when she touched it upon contact with the fork – um, and without any warning, piping hot marinara sauce shot Ugh. from the lasagna and onto Teresa's left hand, scalding the skin and causing a large burn. That sounds horrible. It sounds horrible. I mean, like you're just there to eat. Yeah. The next I mean, thing you but know, I also you're... don't know how you prevent that kind of a thing. It's... Yeah, no. I mean, we've all, you know, we've all had something happen like that, right? Something like R- right lime in your eye when there's someone squeezing a lime. Well, exa- exactly. Something right. like that, you know. Is but it... I guess that's not burning, but Ugh. that's burning. If you've ever had lime in your eye. So unpleasant. And by the way, ruined my favorite meal 
because I love lasagna. So be careful out there. You never know when your lasagna is going to explode. Who knows? Uh, the case um, the case is now going to go to court, and we'll see how that turns out. We'll see if we can if we can have Terry remember to do an update on the exploding lasagna. Oh yeah, we should. One more place I have to wear my full body armor to Olive Garden. <laughs> totally, it never ends. Uh, this is crazy. Over fifty dead geese suddenly fall from the sky in an Idaho storm. Ooh. More than 50 geese fall from the sky and into Idaho Falls parking lot Saturday evening. Hold it. That is when I was in Idaho Falls. Whoa. Well, I mean, you know, they I wonder say if my correlation date night isn't had causation, anything to do that. That sounds pretty suspicious. That is a big deal. The Idaho Department of Fish and Game Conservation officers believe the birds were struck by lightning <gasps> during a ferocious hail and thunderstorm between oh. 7.30 and 8 p.m. See, I was thinking, like, why would they just fall on a parking lot? But if it was lightning, yeah, yikes. Boom. One just, I guess, one gaggle of geese <laughs> right? were, you know, whatever, electrocuted. Jeez. All the geese were dead and fell from the sky at the same time in a in several hundred-yard radius, according to the spokesperson. That leads him to believe it was a lightning strike. Oh, that wrong amazing? time, wrong place. Holy cow. And that, I was right there. I I thought it would have been my date night because we killed it. I'm glad it was the geese, not you, Matt. Yeah. I'd feel bad if I killed a bunch of geese. Yeah. Gaggle. (laughs) That's crazy, man. Can you imagine just be sitting there eating your hot lasagna? Mm -hmm. The next thing you know, bam, 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 bam. All these geese are falling from the sky like like the hailstones were the size of geese. (laughs) Sounds like Fall a bad dream. From the sky. Sounds like the kind of thing you wake up from and then you're not sure if you should actually yeah. tell anyone about because you don't want to sound yeah. crazy. Yeah, but it's not a dream when you go out and you're like peeling a goose off your hood. <laughs> oh. I mean that in the best way possible. Uh, last story for the empty news segment is a burglar broke down a door, but the only thing missing needed uh, is that was the fact that they were missing barbecue sauce. A door to a Columbia, South Carolina resident was damaged during a recent burglary. And the only thing reportedly missing um, at the house of the residents was food, specifically (sighs) chicken nuggets. Actually, two chicken nuggets. Just two? Two nuggets. How how did they know? Were they counting? Uh Uh-huh. No, you always count your nuggets. Oh, well. Yeah. Mama said, always count your nuggets. The incident occurred April 1st. An unknown suspect entered the residence by kicking in the back door. Destroying the door frame, according to police report, two footprints were seen on the door, uh, according to the report, and two chicken nuggets were also removed from the refrigerator. The damage to the door is valued at $100, uh, but the chicken nuggets are valued at $1. Wow. So a net loss of $101. I guess $101. $101. The incident remains under investigation by the Columbia Police Department. Boy, that's just odd. Isn't that weird? If you go to all the trouble to break someone's door down and if I'm I mean, a if, if I'm gonna if I'm a betting man, there's probably more missing and this person doesn't know it. They just don't know yet. They don't know that they're check for the pearls. There's a set of pearls that are missing. They came home, saw the door was gone and said, Check the fridge. <laughs> are my nuggets, nuggets here? <laughs> no way. Did they eat my nuggets? And the sauce too. Can't even enjoy the rest Seriously, of it. Seriously, nobody breaks in for nuggets. That sounds like a hate crime. Yeah, totally. Ugh. So that's the that's the empty news, folks. It Boy. could be worse. Somebody could have taken your nuggets or electrocuted your gaggle. Or exploded lasagna oh, all over hot you. Hot lava 
lasagna. I'm coming away from today feeling very grateful. I am. I am too. Lucky to be alive. And hey, feel free to drive by and get some more nuggets if you'd so, if you're so inclined. Up next, we'll visit with our good brethren from BYU Sports Nation and find out what's coming up on their show. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Hey, folks, welcome back to the show. Uh, You know, we've been talking about getting past self-pity, and we've been revisiting an interview I did a few months ago with Amy Morin, who's a licensed clinical social worker, a psychotherapist, and a a college psychology instructor. She also wrote an article um, that uh, where she said, mentally strong people reserve their resources for productive activities instead of self-pity. We don't need to have the pity party, she's teaching us. I asked her in the interview uh, what she meant by that. Uh, you know, I've never met anybody who says I sat on the couch for four days and <laughs> didn't get dressed and didn't shower, but then I felt much better by day five. I don't know what <laughs> it know, was, but I had really, <laughs> yeah, right. I, I ate cereal for six like weeks. And so to figure out, okay, what's the best use of my time and my energy? You only have so much time and you only have so much energy. And the, the more time that you spend wallowing is the less time that you have to try to improve your situation. And so rather than staying stuck, focused on the problem, to be able to say, well, what, do I, what can I do that's productive? How do I look towards a solution to try to make things a little bit better? That's great. I mean, really, if you've got, you know, certain only a certain amount of energy and resources anyway, spend them wisely. Don't just exactly. don't just double down on the pity party. You right. also talk about practicing gratitude. How do, how do you yeah. do that? I mean, I I always hear that, and that's a great idea. And get a gratitude journal. That's great, but I it's hard to do. You know, when you're downing donuts and you're and you're watching your fourteenth season of a your favorite Netflix binge. Right, and so you know sometimes you have to be um, very purposeful in your attempt to look for what what do I have to be grateful today and it doesn't have to be big things it can be you know I saw the sunshine today or gee I can turn on my faucet and I have clean water that comes out of it that's pretty amazing or clean air to breathe whatever it might be but to be able to just say okay what's three things today I can be grateful for and it might just be things that you normally take for granted or maybe it's a kind word somebody said to you whatever it might be but just to acknowledge those things and well, some people say, yeah, I keep a gratitude journal. Journaling's not for everybody. Some people have a bulletin board or they put it, write it down and put it in a jar. Other people just make a mental note of it or they talk about it to somebody else. Whatever it might be, just to make that a habit in your life because gratitude is really the antidote for self-pity. You can't feel both self-pity and gratitude at the same time. No, I love that. And it gives you something to do again. I mean, if you're focusing your eyes and your mind on uh, on the good stuff of life, it's hard to – I mean, sometimes that's just why a baby or, um, you know, your favorite television show could kind of get you out of a funk just because it makes your mind go somewhere healthier. Right, and sometimes that's it. You just need to have that distraction, something to take you off dwelling and ruminating on how horrible your life is. That's it too, I guess, is one of the keys uh, you talk about is you you almost have to get out of yourself and serve other people. Otherwise, the pity might keep you in the party. Uh, you, you suggest we help or serve others. Yeah, I'm yet to meet anybody who goes and 
serves a meal at a soup kitchen and then says, boy, you know, I feel really sorry for myself. Yeah. If you had the wherewithal to get yourself there and you can and you can serve others, it usually helps you switch your focus to know, okay, I have something to contribute to the rest of the world. Even though my circumstances are bad, it doesn't mean I'm useless or worthless. I can still give to other people. And then just having that reason to get up and get out of bed every day can, can make a huge difference. Yeah, just the service. I guess it's... Um... It's such a natural fix, isn't it? If it's kind of, I either need to point my arrows in or my arrows out, and arrows in seems like eventually it's going to be pretty self-destructive. Um, I need to go yeah. out and, and help others, like Cupid kind of does. You also suggest that healthier people refuse to complain about it. Uh, what do you mean by that? And why does it matter if I do complain about it? You know, a lot of people seem to have this notion that venting is really helpful. So if I call everybody I know and tell them how bad my life is, I'll feel better. But when you take a step back and you think about it, like, why would you feel better? The more you talk about something, the more you're thinking about it, and the more it gets your, all your feelings get fueled by talking about it. And it's usually not helpful. If you go to somebody for genuine advice, a trusted friend, that's one thing. But when you're just complaining and you want people to know how bad your life is, it's not helpful for a few reasons. You know, first of all, self-pity is not a particularly attractive characteristic. Most people don't choose their friends based on who feels sorry for themselves. And also, you know, there's not a contest. Sometimes people seem to think, if I can tell you how horrible my life is, it's like there's a prize. Yeah. Really, there isn't any. You don't win anything for having the worst stuff to deal with. Yeah. If you win a pity party, I mean, and then I guess you're just the bigger loser. Great. Okay. <laughs> right. Yeah. There's nothing good that comes out of winning it. So. <laughs> it's true. It's And there's something, too, about saying it that makes it seem more real. Right. So the minute I'm arguing for all of my messed up traits, they just become more real. Right. Mm. Man, we're pathetic. <laughs> Aren't we, Amy? We just keep we just do it kind of naturally, I guess, because it maybe there's a little catharsis that we benefit from by doing it. But in the end, we kind of solidify bigger problems for ourselves. Right, and you know, there's benefit in being heard. I'll have a lot of people that come into my therapy office and they say, "Yeah, I want to change my life," but by about week four, it becomes clear they just want to come in every week and tell me all the bad things that happened yeah. to them in the past seven days. While it can be helpful to know that somebody's genuinely listening to you, on the other hand, if you're not going to then do anything about it, yeah. talking about it alone isn't isn't going to solve your problems or change your life. It's funny, but it's good for business, isn't it, Amy? It just yes. they just keep coming, <laughs> right? It's and it's sad because you want to help them and you know turn their feelings into action. The last thing um, that you just suggest is we maintain a, an optimistic outlook. And we go actively go build our mental strength. We've got about a minute left. Talk to us just about the about that. Why why is the mental side of this so important to us? You know, because again, if you have a pessimistic outlook on everything, it really influences how you behave. You won't go out and, and make your life into the sort of life that you want to live. If you you'll be self defeated before you even walk out the door. So if you want to be stronger, you have to do two things. The first one is you have to develop healthy habits. But then the other thing is you also have to give up those bad habits like self-pity that drag you down and hold you back. Absolutely. And that, again, was uh, Amy Morin, who is a psychologist, a licensed clinical social worker, psychotherapist, 
uh, teaching us about the importance of watching out for the pity party. It's too easy in our lives to just fall into that void where you uh, everything's bad, everything's sad, your life is horrible, and you're a victim of everything. Again, it doesn't mean there aren't real victims, and it doesn't mean there aren't real times where you should be down. The problem is being down and acting down and thinking down just keeps you down. And at some point, we as humans need to, to probably reach a little deeper and, and find another way out. Eckhart Tolle has a great quote that t- says, Discontent, blaming, complaining, self and self-pity cannot serve as a foundation for a good future, no matter how much effort you make. You're not going to whine, blame, complain, or self-pity yourself out of a out of a problem. It's just it's not the way out. It's actually the way in deeper. If you remember, we've talked on the show about so many other things like rumination. That's kind of the the negative thinking that we do when we've been hurt or harmed. It just drives us into more um, uh, negative thought. Remember, thought leads to feelings. Feelings leads to behavior and action, and action leads to what you're becoming. So if you keep fostering it in self-pity or in complaining or in blaming others, to me, you're just in a mind trap. And that mind trap will eventually lead you to more negative life, more negative behavior, more negative everything. Just, you know, my take on it. Who knows? But uh, doing what we can to end the pity parties of the world. Remember, the goal is to help you live longer, love stronger, and lead healthier, happier lives. This is The Matt Townsend Show. 